Morning. Hey, if you have a Bible, uh, turn to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. That's where we'll be parking it here this morning, continuing on in our series through the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 8. We're going to begin in verse uh, 26. Typo on your outline there, somewhere it says 22, that's incorrect. 26 is the verse that we'll be starting with. And uh, why don't you uh, stand with me as we read today's text. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. Let's all stand in uh, honor of God's word and uh, take a look at this great gospel story that we have for us this morning. Luke 8 beginning in verse 26. It says, Then they, that is Jesus and the disciples, then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he, Jesus, stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he, this man, he he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he, Jesus, had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized the man. And he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him, Jesus, they begged Jesus that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Now a herd of many swine or pigs was was feeding there on the mountain. So they begged Jesus that he would permit them to enter the pigs. And he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. When those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out, the people went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They also, who had seen it, who had seen the miracle, told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. Verse 37, then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked Jesus to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. And he got into the boat and he returned. Now the man with whom the demons had departed begged Jesus that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Let's pray. Lord, would you bless this time in your word? We thank you for it. We ask that your spirit would guide us now, Father, as we read, as we try to understand, that you'd give us spiritual eyes, eyes of wisdom, God to see what it is that you have for us today, what it is you want to teach us. We are open and willing and ready for what you have for us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The title of this message is Power, Pigs, and Purpose. Power, Pigs, and Purpose. Three Ps. The story starts with power. Great power, as a matter of fact. In fact, if you look at the Gospel of Luke in this section of Luke, Luke 8 and 9 and and the, the stories around it, it's all about power. All of it. You see, prior to this story 
uh, a vignette that we're not covering, because again, we're not covering every uh, vignette in the Gospel of Luke. We're, we're trying to move through a little bit more quickly. But in the previous story, one that we haven't covered, Jesus calms the sea of Galilee. The disciples and he are in a boat and the waves are crashing and, and Jesus is sleeping and the disciples come to him and say, Jesus, wake up, we're drowning. And Jesus calms the storm. Power over nature. Here, here in our story today, we're going to see how Jesus has power over the spiritual world and spiritual affliction. In the next stories after that, You'll see Jesus interacting with a woman who is perpetually bleeding. And he heals her. Jesus has power over physical illness. And in another story after that, you're going to see Jesus interact with Jairus' daughter. A, a girl who was deathly ill and then died. And yet Jesus came to the scene and says, she's not dead, she's merely sleeping. And he raised her up from physical death. Power. Power over nature. Power over the spiritual world. Power over physical illness. Power over physical death. Power. And our story today is not just about power, though. It's also about pigs. We'll get to that. And about purpose. About where we're headed in life. But first, let's look at the power that Jesus exhibits Beginning again in verse 26. It says, Then they, Jesus and the disciples, they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes. He was naked. Nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. A few words about uh, this, this section of Luke. It's mentioned here that Jesus and the disciples get into the boat and, and cross the Sea of Galilee. Essentially, they were on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. They cross heading eastward, and they go into a new region, the country of the Gadarenes. Some of your Bibles may have the translation Gerasenes. Others of your translations may also have it translated Gergesenes. Essentially, uh, scholars are a little bit perplexed as to which part of the eastern coast on the Sea of Galilee this is. But nevertheless, uh, it's in a region, a general region on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee to which Jesus um, went in a boat. And as he gets to the other side, to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, he encounters a very unique individual. He steps out on land and there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. Look at the description of this man. It says that he wore no clothes. He was naked. I don't know about you, but I have not seen a naked man in quite some time out walking around. And I'm very happy about that. We just don't see people walking naked out, out and about. Well, maybe some do in like San Francisco. I don't know. Maybe they do. But we, we, in Orange County, we're not used to people walking around naked. This man is walking around naked. Don't lose, lose sight of that, but don't lose sight of that. This is a strange sight. Don't, don't overlook it so quickly in the scripture. You know, when we read a story, we think, okay, moving on. No, he was naked, walking around naked. That is a strange sight to behold. And it says he did not have a house, but he lived in the tombs. He was socially isolated in his country, in his region. He didn't have a home. He didn't have a place to go. He instead went and lived in the tombs. The cemetery. Actually, he did have a place to go, but he chose not to go there. We'll get to that at the end of the story. He chose to live in the cemetery, among the, the dead. That's a pretty strange thing to do. Naked and living among the tombs. But that's not all. Take a look at verses 28 and 29 as we continue the description of this man. In verse 28, when he, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, 
do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it, the spirit, had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Notice again some of the additional descriptions here. That he was crying, that he was shouting. A naked man among the tombs, crying and shouting. That he was seizing from the demon. That it seized him. That it overcame him. That he was controlled in his psychosis by the demon. That the demon had control over his mind, over his emotions, over his psyche. And not just in the mind and in, in, this, uh, in his psyche, but also through the use of, of the force of the man. It indicates that this man had brute and violent force. Incredible physical strength beyond what is normal for, for a man. You know, you read this description and you may think to yourself, I don't see that very often. From Western eyes, we think it's pretty rare to encounter something like this. Something like demon possession, really. In fact, some believe that demon possession was uh, an aspect uh, of Jesus' day. And that we, you know, we read about it in, in the gospel, sure, but, uh, but that was then and this is now. We're, we're now in an age of, of modernism and technological advance and surely that there's not such mundane things such as this. But were you to travel to Haiti, as our team recently did last month, I promise you your mind would be changed. Anyone who declares that demon possession is for a bygone age is dead wrong. And all they need to do is travel to Haiti. For there in Haiti, you will find people that fit this very description. The very description of the man in Luke 8. You will find people in Haiti wandering dark streets and cemeteries in Port-au-Prince and in the outlying regions. I've seen them. So has Mike and Carrie. So has Doug. So has Monica. So has Tom. So have many others of you who have gone. Some of our teams have gone to Haiti and we've actually gone to the cemeteries where we see these people living among the tombs. And we see their erratic mind. And we see their erratic convulsing and seizing. And we see unusual strength in some of them. We see them crying. We see them shouting. Sometimes without clothes. Pastor Pierre, whose orphanage we support in Haiti... Pastor Pierre regularly encounters Haitians afflicted by demons. And he has personally prayed over many of them. And he has witnessed the Lord heal some of them from their affliction. Okay, Neil, that's, that's Haiti. But we're in the U.S. And that doesn't happen here, right? Well, maybe. But I don't think so. You see, here in the U.S., it takes a different form. What we see in Haiti is one thing. What you see in the U.S. is a lot more veiled. It's a lot more under the radar. But nevertheless, if you look a little more closely, it's readily apparent. I direct your attention to the culture of drugs and alcoholism in this country. Uh, John, who serves in uh, police at the Huntington Beach Station, has told me stories of encountering men who are high on PCP, and were you to hear him describe their physical and emotional state, you would find it not very unlike what we read here in Luke chapter 8. Were you to ask John, tell me about the strength of the man on PCP, he would describe to you a strength that is beyond the capacity of a human man to have on his own. Where does that strength come from? It would not be a far stretch to suggest that there's demonic affliction 
demonic possession among those embedded in the drug and alcohol culture of the West. Demons use drugs and drinking as tools to edge their way into the souls of mankind along with many other tools. Demon possession is very real today. Demon affliction is very real today. Make no mistake. Demons are powerful. They can overpower a man. But there is one power they cannot match. And that's where we can rest. Because it's the power of Jesus Christ where they completely crumble. Look again at verse 28. When he, the man, saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him. And with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. The only way that demonic possession or affliction can be healed is by the spiritual power that comes from Christ. For the demons are subject to Christ. You know, Mark uh, 5 has a similar story of this story that we read in Luke 8. There's a parallel story in Mark 5 and also in Matthew 8. But in Mark's version of the story, he indicates that the, that the man fell down and worshipped Jesus right then and there. That the demons fell down in just utter surrender before God and worshipped him. Totally subject to Jesus Christ. On bended knee before Almighty God. Able to overcome a man. But looking upon the Lord, they fall down in immediate worship and beg him not to torment them. In verse 28, Matthew puts it, Have you come here to torment us before the time? Have you come here to torment us before the time? What time? The time of judgment. Because you see, friends, angels, fallen angels, demons, unclean spirits, these two will be judged, not just those who don't believe in Jesus Christ. We see indications of this in the New Testament in places like 2 Peter 2.4 where it says that God did not spare the angels who sinned, but he cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And again in Jude 1.6, the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, God has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. You see, the demons knew, and the demons that were within this man knew instinctively when Jesus showed up that that was an indication that their judgment was near. And they asked him, please do not torment us. Have you come to torment us? They were wondering, is this the day? Is this the day where we will finally be judged? Because they know it's coming. Verse 30, Jesus responds. Jesus asked him, saying, what is your name? And he said to Jesus, legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Legion is the demon's name. A Roman military term used to describe a brigade, really, of 6,000 soldiers. It'd be the equivalent of, of kind of a little bit smaller than maybe a U.S. Army brigade. 6,000 Roman soldiers. Legion is their name. An indication that whatever has afflicted this man is great and powerful and many. They are well organized. They have great power. They have overcome this man to the tune of many, many demons, perhaps thousands. Their name is Legion, and they have controlled this man. They have controlled his life. And they begged Jesus again, verse 31, and they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Now that's an interesting one. I know some of you are reading that going, what's that? I've, I've not encountered that word very often in the New Testament. And of course you haven't, because it's not mentioned very often in the New Testament. Uh, a little bit in the Old Testament as well, but it's, it's pretty, pretty sparse. You can write this down in your outline here uh, if you want to... Uh, Actually, you can make note of the scripture references I've given you there. One from Romans chapter 10, verse 7, and then about seven others from the book of Revelation. 
The abyss is also known as the bottomless pit. The, the bottomless pit. And Jonah in the Old Testament also references a pit or the abyss that he experienced uh, as he went and encountered the whale's belly. Nevertheless, the abyss is um, a very unique place and has a unique, um, has a unique um, description in Jewish tradition. Uh, doing some study on the term abyss, if you, if you read ancient Jewish literature, if you look up their tradition and read what the rabbis have, have said in the Mishnah and the Talmud and, and in their various writings, there's one Palestinian targum, which is essentially like a, a Jewish commentary, okay? There's one Palestinian targum that says this about the abyss. Listen to this. This is quoted by Michael Barber, from his book on Revelation. He writes this, Michael Barber writes, he says, Rabbinic tradition passed on the story of how King David almost inadvertently unleashed the waters of Sheol when he came to lay the foundation for the temple which Solomon later built. In other words, what Barber's about to set up here is he's saying, look, legend has it. He's not saying that this is true. But he says in Jewish legend or tradition, there's a story in the Palestinian Targum how King David, as he was digging the foundation, he and his son were digging the foundation for the temple in Jerusalem, that they encountered a certain spot in the foundation. And read what the Palestinian Targum says about this spot. This is from the Jewish rabbis. When King David came to dig the foundation for the temple, around the foundation stone, David dug to a depth of 1,500 cubits. And at length, he found a projecting stone, which he wished to remove. But the stone said to him, This thou canst not do. David asked, why not? And the stone answered, I cover the mouth of the abyss. But David would not hearken and wished to remove the stone. And as he tried, the waters of the abyss rose in great torrents, which appeared to be about to flood the world. Then David began to sing the song of degrees from the book of Psalms, and the waters of the abyss returned to their place. That's fascinating, isn't it? Jewish legend, Jewish tradition, we're not suggesting here that you're to read this and call it gospel truth. I don't believe it myself. But here's what I do believe. That the Jews, in, their, in some of their rabbinic tradition, recognized that the abyss was a place below the earth, below the surface of the deep, a bottomless pit, And in in their idea, it was actually a watery pit, a pit that was filled with fluid and darkness and damp and like death. That was their notion of the abyss or the bottomless pit in Jewish tradition. On your outline there, rabbinic tradition believed the abyss to be a watery pit below the surface of the earth. You can see the Palestinian Targum Sanhedrin 10.2 to reference what I just said. But that's the Jewish legend. That's Jewish tradition. Let's get back to the scripture for a minute. What does the Bible have to say about the abyss? Well, were you to do your own study, again in Romans and Revelation, you could say three things about the abyss. Write this down in your outline. The Bible indicates that the abyss is, number one, a temporary confinement for fallen angels. A temporary place of confinement for fallen angels. It's it's said that repeatedly in the scripture. Secondly, what we can say about the abyss is it is the place from which the beast or the Antichrist arises. The place from which the beast or the Antichrist arises. Revelation, um, I believe it's chapter 9, it could also be chapter 11 references that fascinating story about the rising of the beast and number three this is what we can say about the abyss it is where satan will be chained for a thousand years before he is cast into the lake of fire it is where satan will be chained he will be taken and chained 
during the millennial kingdom of Christ for a thousand years while he awaits his final judgment in the lake of fire. Well, that was a little fascinating rabbit trail that I, I, I myself went on for a time in my studies and I thought might be interesting to you. Don't confuse the abyss with hell. They're not the same thing. Make sure you separate the two. And the abyss is, is, uh, is not the lake of fire. There is something unique to this place. It is a temporary confinement from which the Antichrist comes and to which Satan will go for a thousand years. Let's jump to verse 32. Now we know where the angels don't want to go. They don't want to go, excuse me, the demons don't want to go. These fallen angels don't want to go to the abyss. Where do they want to go? Verse 32. Now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain. And so they, the demons, begged Jesus that he would permit them to enter the pigs. And he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. I beg you, do not torment me. Verse 28. I beg you, don't throw me into the abyss. Verse 31. I beg you, let me go into the pigs. Verse 32. Seeing a pattern? They're begging and beseeching. They're totally prostrate before Almighty God, before Jesus, recognizing that He has complete power over them and all they can do is but beg Him. The herd of swine, by the way, is really interesting because it indicates something about where Jesus is. How many Jewish farmers do you know have swine on their farm? Not many. Pigs are unclean, right? Uh, all the way back to the beginnings of the Old Testament, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, stay away from the pigs. No, Jewish, no self-respecting Jewish farmer would raise pigs. And so, when you see now, on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, a herd of swine, you can be sure we're no longer in Kansas anymore. We're in a whole new place, a Gentile region, Across the Sea of Galilee on the eastern side, we can be sure that Jesus has now entered a brand new Gentile region to which he's never gone before up until this point in Luke. This is actually, um, just to put it in your own perspective, this is the south and west tip of what begins the Golan Heights in Israel, a very um, disputed territory between Israel and the nation of Syria today. And it's, uh, it's always been a territory and a region of instability. And so when you uh, hear about the Golan Heights in the news, most of you are hearing about Gaza and you're hearing about the West Bank. Don't lose sight of the Golan Heights. That will come back into the news, I can assure you. And that is the region, southwestern tip of the region to which Jesus has gone. A Gentile region. The demons see the pigs. The unclean demons see the unclean swine and think, hey, that's a perfect match. And so they ask Jesus, can we go to the swine? And he says, yes. And they enter the pigs. They leave the man. They enter the pigs. And away the pigs go, down the mountain, down the hill, straight into the Sea of Galilee and drown I've been to one of the places on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee to which they, they point and they say this is perhaps where it happened, a small cliff that, w- they, w- that they would have jumped off into the sea. It isn't without a touch of irony as well that the demonic pigs go on to physically die in water in spite of their plea to be saved from the watery bottomless pit of the abyss. Well, the pig farmers, the Gentile pig farmers, see all of this happening before them. They see what's happened to the man. They see what's happened to their pigs. They're all dead, drowned in the Sea of Galilee. And naturally, they freak out. And they run into town to tell everyone what has happened. We pick up the story in verse 34. Verse 34, Then those, when those who fed the pigs saw what had happened, they fled 
and told it in the city and in the country. And then the people, they, they went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were very afraid. Verse 36, they also who had seen it told them by what means the man who had been demon-possessed was healed. So now everybody's getting to know what happened to the story. The townsfolk, word is passing, the, 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 we're playing telephone here, and it, off it goes, like wildfire. Everyone hears about it in the town and in the country. And notice the contrast, though, that you see with the man who now has been healed, formerly possessed by legion. Now what, what is he doing? You know, we, we spoke of him as, as naked and living in the tombs and, and, and convulsing and seizing and, and having unbelievable physical strength and, and mentally just gone, emotions awry. Here he is now, sitting at the feet of Jesus, verse 35. He's sitting at Jesus' feet. He's clothed. He's in his right mind. He is at peace, completely at peace. What's interesting about the word um, healed there in verse 36, because it goes on to say that they also who had seen it told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. Luke uses that word quite strategically now, doesn't he? The word healed there is the Greek word sozo, the Greek verb for to save or to be healed or to be made well. Luke is making a very important point here in Luke chapter 8. He's saying that this man was sozo. He was saved. He was healed. He was made well. He was brought back from a state of being so far away from God and he was brought back into right relationship and balance and harmony with his Creator. You see, when you, see, when you encounter the word sozo in Greek, you need to expand your definition just a little bit. So often we look at it as just in a matter of life and death, heaven and hell. Not so here in the Gospel of Luke. Sometimes it, it references eternal salvation, sozo. Other times it references physical healing, sozo. Uh, later on in uh, Luke 8, uh, verse uh, 48, take a look at 8.48. Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Sozo, in verse 48. He's referencing there the power of Jesus healing the woman who had an affliction of blood. He says, your faith has made you well. You're whole again. You're healed. And also in verse 50 of Luke 8. Again, that story we'll read a little bit later. Jesus heard it. He answered him saying, do not be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. Sozo in Greek. He's speaking there to Jairus and saying, don't worry, your daughter, she's, she's just sleeping. When I come, she'll be made well. Just believe. She'll be, she'll be made whole. When Jesus, when Luke, when the gospel writers speak of being saved, they're not just talking about going to heaven. They're talking about being brought completely back into balance and harmony and wholeness with your Lord. Having previous afflictions and hardships, both spiritual and physical hardships and afflictions, having them been done away with and brought back into relationship with God. That's what it means to be made well, to experience salvation in the fullest sense. Well, surely, surely, anyone who encounters Jesus doing what he just did to this demon-possessed man, surely anyone happening upon the scene and seeing what had happened with the demon-possessed man and the herd of swine and all of the, the miracles that had taken place, surely anyone would have looked upon that moment and been impressed and been drawn to Jesus and said, oh, we need to learn more from you. Would you stay here? Would you teach us? Can we learn from you? God's power at work. Surely everyone would be drawn to God's power, right? Not necessarily, says Luke. Verse 37. 
Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked Jesus to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. And he got into the boat and he returned. Fear. Fear is paralyzing. And fear paralyzed the people of the Gadarenes. They saw Jesus' power. They saw it with their own eyes. They knew, this, they knew this man. They knew this naked man who walked in their cemetery, who cried and shouted in the night. They knew this man. They see, they've seen him before. They knew of his brute strength, of his, how he was mentally just gone emotionally whimsical and unstable. They knew this man. And they knew what Jesus had done for him. They looked upon this man and he was brand new. He was saved. He was made well. And they were afraid of it. They saw the power of God and they were fearful of it. And they asked Jesus to leave. That goes to show, folks, that demonstrations of God's power are not always enough to convince people to trust in Him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the Jews seek signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but that such things do not necessarily affect salvation. Later on in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus will say to the rich man in Luke 16, he'll say, look, even if I sent someone back from the dead, they would not listen. Even if they saw it with their own eyes, someone rising from the dead, they would not listen. Yeah, I, I, I shared a story recently online uh, with, with others. Um, there's a story in Israel now, of a remarkable and well-vetted story, well-sourced story, of God (laughs) from the eyes of the Jew and the Palestinian of the Lord God of Israel changing the direction of some of the missiles that have been fired from Gaza there's a very well sourced story Um, multiple news agencies have reported it in which a colonel in the Israeli uh, defense forces eyewitness accounts looked up They saw the missile coming from Gaza. They fired their Iron Dome missile once. It missed. They fired it again. It missed. He says for it to miss twice like that is is just an infinitesimal percentage. It It was very sad and tragic that the missiles had missed. And he said that they had four seconds and they were calling... Uh, calling their superiors saying, you have four seconds before this missile lands upon civilians in Israel. Four seconds. Four seconds left. They knew the exact target. And in the four seconds that they were on the phone and recognizing that the missile was about to hit, the company of men surrounding him, very somber, recognizing that this was going to be a direct hit on a civilian target in Israel. Within those four seconds, an unbelievably mighty wind arose from the east and flew up against that missile that was fired from Gaza and redirected it into the Mediterranean Sea. The IDF, Israel Defense Force Colonel, swears it was Almighty God, as does many of the company of his men. The Palestinians, Hamas terrorists, I should clarify, who fired that missile among them, word had spread among them, uh, and news reports had come out of Gaza. Uh, A news story read at the top, their God changes the path of our missiles. Their God changes the path of our missiles. And yet, and yet, demonstrations of God's power is not always enough to convince people to trust Him. If I was, if I was a Hamas terrorist and I fire a missile and the missile turns around and goes into the Mediterranean as a result of a mighty wind within four seconds of impact, I would tend to think that I'd change my mind, right? Not so. Not so. There's some folks out there who, despite the most credible evidence presented to them, despite someone rising from the dead, they look upon God's power and they go, nah, 
That's not, that's not enough for me to change my mind. May our hearts be pliable and honest and open so that when we see God's power at work, we can look upon it and go, oh my goodness, thank you, Lord, for what you have done. God forbid that our heart would be so cold and calloused and fearful that we could see God's power and say, that's not for me. I want you to leave, Jesus. We can be fearful. We can be afraid to ask God to show His power for fear that it might not come to fruition or that His power might manifest in a way that we didn't expect it or desire it to do. So often we fail to ask God for miracles because of fear. But it probably wasn't just fear that gripped the men and women of the Gadarenes. There was probably one more thing at work. I wanted to mention it here. This is in relationship to the pigs. See, the Gadarene people were also probably motivated by something else as they pushed Jesus out of their region. They were motivated by money. Luke doesn't say it, but Matthew and, uh, excuse me, Mark alludes to it. Luke indicates that the demons, as they, as they asked to go into the herd, of, the herd of swine, that Jesus permitted them to go, and away went the herd into the Sea of Galilee. But Luke never mentions how many swine it was. But Mark does. In Mark's version of the story, Mark 5, he indicates that it wasn't just a small group of pigs up on the hillside. Mark says it was over 2,000 pigs on the hillside. 2,000 pigs. Which, I, which goes back to legion being 6,000 you know, soldiers uh, from the Roman uh, military. Maybe, maybe there was the, uh, a great many thousands of demons that were involved in this possession. Six, uh, excuse me, 2,000 swine. Now, just to put that in perspective, today uh, I, I checked my, my local, you know, I want to buy a pig website the other day. They're hard to find. You know, I typed in, I want to buy a pig, and I clicked search, and I don't think the farmers are really on Google yet. Um, but nevertheless, I, I kind of got a price for it, and a, a good, nice, portly uh, livestock pig is anywhere from uh, 300 to about $1,000 a pig. So let, let's be really conservative, and let's just say about 500 right? 500 per pig. 2,000 pigs. Anybody do math? How much? One million dollars. One million dollars. It's likely that the Gadarenes, especially those who own those pigs, asked Jesus to leave because his spiritual power was complicating their economic power. It was disrupting their physical lives. They had just lost a million dollars in today's economy. And for that, they wanted Jesus out of their town, out of their region. The power of God wasn't welcome when it went up against the almighty dollar. As the old English commentator Matthew Henry put it, too many, quote, prefer their pigs above their Savior and so come short of Christ and salvation through him. And so I ask us, very simply, do we value property over people? Do you value property over people? Because the power of God usually doesn't manifest <laughs> in terms of property. It usually comes and manifests itself in terms of changing hearts and lives. And we ought to be a people that always sacrifices property for the sake of people. You know, you look at our uh, benevolent fund. If you open up your bulletin, at the very bottom in the middle, uh, you'll see a, a, an accounting in, in the bottom middle of our bulletin, an accounting of our benevolent fund. Our benevolent fund, of course, is a fund many of you are familiar with. It goes to put, uh, you know, pay for rent for those who are hurting, food, um, you know, basic costs. Uh, in some cases, we help those who are afflicted, who are struggling with, uh, with various things in their life or who have gone through in intense hardship. 
And right now, that, that benevolent fund is, is down. And I very rarely draw attention to money, as you well know. We don't preach about money, but once, maybe, or twice a year. But I want to draw your attention to it, because it is in the red right now. And you know why it's in the red? Because Coast Bible Church values people over property. Amen? We value people over property. And so we've, we've spent more than we have because we want to invest in people. And Jesus here is calling attention to the Gadarenes. He's saying, are you going to invest in this man who was in your community, whom you all saw and knew and you knew his difficulty, and yet are you going to invest in him and praise God for what God has done in him? Or are you, through fear and through selfishness, going to send Christ away and say, no, we we like our lives the way it was. We don't want any sacrifice here. I draw our attention to the benevolent fund. If you so choose to give to it, 100% of your property goes into the life of people. People who need a hand up and who need to see the power of God demonstrated by supplying for their basic needs. But let's finish up. Verse 38 in our story today. Now the man, verse 38, from whom the demons had departed begged Jesus that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed through the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. We talked about the power of God. We've talked about the pigs. Now we're talking about the purpose. This man thought he had a purpose now. And he thought that purpose was to go with the man who had healed him, Jesus Christ. He wanted to go with Jesus. He said, wherever you go, I'll go. Please let me come with you. I want to follow you. I will forsake everything and follow you. This man thought that he knew his new purpose in life. Jesus says no. It's a pretty peculiar thing for him to say, isn't it? No. Jesus says, you're not going to do that. That's not your purpose right now. Instead, he told the man, return to your own house, which indicates there that the man did have some family, some livelihood that he had left at one point in time in the Gadarenes. Go to back to your house, Jesus says, and tell what great things God has done for you. You know, folks, sometimes you might think that you're best equipped in ministry for some certain thing. You might be thinking, oh, I, I'm best equipped to, to teach adults. I, I'm, I, I'm capable to teach adults, and so I want to teach adults. And pastor, elders, that's what I want to do. I want to teach the adults. And yet God might be equipping you to invest in the lives of children. Others of you might be thinking, I want to go in the mission field. I want people to raise, uh, raise up support, help me raise money, and I want to go out and be a missionary. And then months and, and years go by and the support is still at a paltry amount. And yet they still, such people who sometimes have this uh, notion in their head that regardless, I'm gonna, whether it takes 5, 10, 20 years, I'm still going to keep pressing forward. And yet God may have a different path for that person. We just don't know. The point is, is that we need to listen to the Lord's instructions for us. <laughs> this man wanted to go be with Jesus 24-7, and Jesus says, no, that's not what I want you to do. If this man's request was denied, how much more so sometimes do we need to rethink what God is asking of us to do? And it can be hard to hear, but the humble servant of Christ will earnestly seek to listen to God through his word, through prayer, through the advice of other trusted Christians, an earnest servant of Christ will ask the question of the Lord, Lord, where do you want me? I'm not going to insist on my way. I'm not going to insist and put my foot down and say, either I serve here or I don't serve at all. No, Jesus says. You serve where God wants you. You are, you are pliable clay in the Lord's hands and he's going to mold you and he's going to shape you and he's going to direct you into the right path and usually not always but oftentimes that path is something you least expected sometimes that path is what you least expected 
And there you find a better purpose, a better plan. This man, Jesus had for this man a better plan in mind. Jesus says, go home and go tell what great things God has done. And Luke says in the very last verse, the man went home and proclaimed through the whole city what great things Jesus had done. Notice Jesus says, go tell everyone what God did for you. And then Luke says, the man went and told everyone what Jesus did for him. Luke's making a subtle reference there to the divinity of Christ, that Jesus is God. And that when Jesus told the man to go tell what God had done, he went and proclaimed what the Son of God had done in and through him. A brand new life, the power of God at work in him, bringing him purpose and direction. Power, pigs, and purpose. All of us see the power of God. We see it in many different ways. We witness it through testimonies. We witness it in our own life. We see the hand of God at work everywhere. We must ask ourselves, are we going to respond to the power of God? Are we going to hold on to the, the pigs of life? Hold on to our property, our earthly possessions. Be more comfortable in that department of life. Jesus says, embrace the power of God, and therein you will find your purpose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray, God, that we would catch a taste of what you would have for us to learn in this story. God, we've seen your power at work, healing a man who is demon-possessed. And God, we call out to you that we want to see that kind of power manifest in our midst, in our lives, in this earth, and in our community. We want to see it, God. And we want to be people who respond to it, who don't hold on to our our pigs, but who respond to it wholeheartedly, embracing your power, welcoming it into our lives. And then humbly asking you, God, would you direct me? Would you show me where you want me to go? What you want me to do? I thank you, Lord, for your power in us, for your power in the midst of this community. I thank you for the powerful witness that you're giving to so many here in our midst. Those who've gone to Haiti, those who've gone to Camp Allendale, those being healed from cancer, and so much more, Lord. We rest in your mighty power and we look forward to the day when your power is made fully manifest on the last day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.